Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco innovations that are changing your world. My guest this week is a plant whisperer. She makes things grow. Jennifer Jewell is a gardener, a gardening educator, advocate, and author. Since 2016, she has written and hosted the national award-winning weekly public radio program and podcast, Cultivating Place. Jennifer, welcome to the Green Sense Show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Really, really nice uh, to share this space with you, Robert. Thank you so much. Well, your interests lie at the intersection between gardens, the native plant environments around them, and human culture. Where did you get your passion, and how did you come up with that place? Well, you know, it's it's definitely the result of the marriage of my two parents. My mother was a gardening uh, professional. She was a garden designer, a floral designer, and an avid home gardener that provided a lot of food for our family. I grew up at about 8,000 feet in Colorado, so that's some pretty uh, tough gardening for anyone who's ever gardened at that elevation. Um, and my father is a wildlife biologist. So between them, we had two very what a different, cool background. Right. It was. It was a very, you know, it was a good marriage, as they say. And it really led me to my interest in how these two things, cultivating um, and our wild places, how how they intersect and where they intersect to the benefit of them both rather than the detriment of either. Excellent. Well, thank you for that concise explanation. You recently published the book titled What We Sow. And in it, you share your personal observations, interview with prominent scientists and seed savers. Why did you write that book and why was it focused on seeds? Well, that's a really good question. I, you know, doing the work I do as a garden communicator, very similar to you, trying to like keep really good green sense, as it were, um, in front of people that care about it so that they can make the best choices with what they do. I am dedicated to kind of elevating and expanding the way we think and talk about home gardeners. I think it's often dismissed as a hobby or, you know, that it is something that's perfectly lovely and delicious, uh, but not really powerful. And in writing this book, I kind of commit to the idea that we as people that care about plants, seeds, food, our environment, that we and the decisions we make in our garden spaces actually affect a lot of change, sometimes for the good. And sometimes if we're not paying real attention, we are complicit in things that aren't going so well in the world. And in 2020, when as a home gardener, there was this like rush on small seed sellers and a lot of, um, out of stock, back ordered uh, messages coming to me from the seed suppliers I relied on. I thought to myself, what don't I know about seed and where it's being grown and who is taking care of it? And as 
someone who thinks of myself as a pretty knowledgeable gardener, I was like, wow, there's a lot I don't know. And I felt like it was my obligation really as a citizen and a gardener to, to learn more about who was stewarding our seed supply in this world because everything comes back to seed in so many ways, right? Like our food, our houses, the wood, the the clean air and water based on plants and the seed bearing plants are 80% of the plants on the planet. So they're important. Well, earlier this year, we did an interview, which I really enjoyed. It was with Lisa Stephenson. She's the managing director of Nordgen, mm. who operates the Svalbard uh, Seed Vault in Norway. Yeah. And I got a chance to go to Norway earlier this year. What a beautiful oh, country. Put that lucky. on your bucket list. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. Awards. Yeah. And the seed bank was established as a genetic uh, seed bank for the world to protect these global varieties of seeds. And... Uh, she and the Norwegians have, have understood how important it is to preserve seeds and have a space, not so much for the world to end, but if just common things happen to seed banks yeah. in different countries like floods or fires. Um, so I thought maybe it'd be a good place to start. If you could take us through the traditional way seeds are produced for commercial use, commercial or home use, and if you could sort of compare an a, a organic seed supply chain to maybe uh, non-organic and and commodity seeds, yeah, both are very different. Very, very different, and um, and they all have a place. And each each one of those modes of getting seed into the world are are important, right? Because the simplest is you and me gardening at home, saving seeds from our favorite crops, and then sharing them with each other. Like this is an age old way of supplying seed to the world is I save my five favorite, you save your five favorite. Same with everyone in our community. We get together at the Grange come October and we we share. Now, as the seed world got more uh, scaled and more interconnected across the globe, we have these, these different forms. So we went from Late 1800s, the United States government was the largest seed supplier to all uh, producers, uh, especially bigger producers, in order to fuel uh, food and seed security, which are related um, across the, the U.S. continent and, you know, hand in hand with westward expansion. And then the American Seed Trade Association was developed sort of early in the 20th century, and they realized that that large seed distributor, the U.S. government, handing out seed for free in order to allow for this expansion in food security was anti kind of entrepreneurship and the business side of seed. So you see the development of seed companies who grow and then sell for money as opposed to just swapping. And for a long time, you know, there were there were home there were catalogs, there were home growers who grew specifically to provide a lot of seed into the the industry or into the market. Um and that has that got bigger and then it kind of contracted as very large corporations started buying up genetics or patents or trademarks of specific kinds of plants and then then you started to see some of the big seed producers. I mean, you think of like 
Johnny's or Parks or um, there's so many in that mid-century time frame. Um, Burpee, uh, there, there's a bunch. And then you see this interesting thing happen sort of after World War II where you start to get this interface between the chemical companies, the pharmaceutical companies, and the seed companies. And at this point where we sit now, Robert, we have I think they say four major pharmaceutical chemical companies who control about 60% of our commodity seed trade. And so when we say commodity, we're talking like big corn, big wheat, big soy. Um, but that's kind of an like that's kind of a weird thing to think about, right? That chemical and pharmaceutical companies are controlling all of this big seed. And it kind of makes you wonder why and what does that mean and what are the consequences of that? Um, and in the last 10, 20 years, we've seen this real resurgence of small, locally based, organic, or at least natural, even if they don't have USDA organic certification, really trying to grow the seed that is well adapted for their area, get it out to the growers in their area, and uh, have that seed be particularly adapted to that exact climate, that exact soil, so that the seed is as resilient as possible in the face of new pests, new diseases, climate change, and global seed supply disruptions like the pandemic. So it's been this like really interesting, you know, expansion and then contraction and then expansion in these different levels of the seed supply chain, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? It does. And that opens up just so much areas of discussion. You know, yeah. the first is, uh, you know, I think we're all getting uh, quite frustrated with big business hmm. and its monopolistic behavior, how it really sucks the life out of its workers, you know, how it's really driven by corporate profits. And, you know, it, it does not care about the environment or I shouldn't say that in general. I mean, there are good companies out there, but in general, right. big business is set up to deliver shareholder value. And yeah. return investment to its shareholders. Yeah. So it's not supposed to do those other things. But big business has gotten so big, it controls politics, it controls policy, both at a local, state, and a federal level. And it controls our food supply, starting with the seeds and the chemicals used in it. Yeah. Now, when you talk to the Bayers and the Monsantos out there, um, it takes a uh, billion dollars, they say, to bring a new seed crop to market. And that's the reason why when you see a cornfield... You see consistency. It's all the same height. <laughs> There's very little variation. It takes a lot of effort to breed seeds and get them to produce consistently. And the average person can't do that. And when you mix two seeds, you're not exactly sure what you're going to get, you know, end up with. Right. So there's pros and cons to both. But when they Definitely. start using GMO and genetically modifying these seeds so that they're more resistant to pesticides and this is your merge of chemicals and seeds where you can start to put more chemicals on to make more money. Right. This is not good. <laughs> and I think it, people are starting to get fed up with this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, I am not on principle anti-GMO, anti-GE as technology, but when we see it scaled at this level and at this point it is now believed that the pre based on 
research from the USDA that the pre-treated, chemically treated seeds that are herbicide resistant and um, all of these other resistant seed that then have that chemical, those biocides as they were, you know, permeate all of their cells. At this point, non-organic corn in the U.S., all of it has persistent residue of these chemicals. And that right there makes me just very worried. It's very unsettling to think that we can't find unpesticide treated corn in our in our world and that that those genetics that come with that are impacting some of the heritage and heirloom seeds that our biodiversity relies on like consistency is a wonderful goal, uh, especially when you're trying to have a solid, stable economy. But if it's at the expense of biodiversity and the health of our soil and water and human food, that's not, that to me is not worth it. I would rather have inconsistent corn and inconsistent returns from the corporations and protect these long-term resources that we rely on for health and the future. So in your opinion, uh, you know, with the climate changing, with the proliferation of GMO, genetically modified and GE, genetically mm -hmm. engineered seeds dominating commodity crops, like you mentioned, the corn, the wheat, the soybeans, how do we make the seed supply chain more sustainable? Well, I think one of the ways is that we remember how powerful we are as individuals when aggregated. So what I mean by that is, and I think you have seen these same statistics with the, what you do, prior to the pandemic, there was something like 38% of all U.S. households self-identified as engaging in home gardening. Post-pandemic, that was closer to 75%. That is... Um, 100 million households engaged. So you get 100 million households to decide they do not want to buy into or invest or be complicit with that seed, seed supply that has the chemicals or the GMOs. And all of a sudden you make an economic difference. Our dollar votes for what we want to see in the world. So my advice is, Go find your local seed suppliers. Ask them where they're sourcing their seed. Most of our mid and small sized seed growers, the catalogs that come to us every year, they grow some of their own, but they source from other regional growers who are growing their own seed as well. Those seeds, even if it's, let's say, my favorite pumpkin is winter luxury. I might buy it here in Northern California where I live, or I might buy it from Hudson Valley or Johnny's over in the Northeast, or I might find it from Prairie Moon in the Midwest. Wherever you buy it, if it's grown in that exact location, it has adapted. Even in one generation, it started to collect adaptations to live well in that exact location. So the more each of us buy from our good local seed growers and suppliers, the more we are ensuring 
a local seed supply in the future, but also really good local seed genetics for our places that are changing a little bit every year. We we all see it in our gardens. Well, in my day job, I'm a, a CEA specialist, Controlled Environment Agriculture, which right. is the science of growing indoors. And we manufacture, design, and install greenhouses and vertical farms. And when I built my uh, first indoor vertical farm, I was a real novice because uh, we built it to operate it. And I gained a very deep appreciation for seeds. So we built the first farm and very proud that we can grow indoors and yeah. sowed our seeds. And we got a really low germination rate and even a worse growth rate. And so yeah. we checked all our equipment and uh, we didn't know what went wrong. And later on, I talked to one of our mentors uh, at University of Arizona, Dr. Gene Giacomelli, and said, oh, what can I, he goes, well, maybe you got bad seeds. I said, bad seeds, can that happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so we racked our brains and it turned out the bad they were bad seeds. They yeah. uh, didn't have good germ rates. They were old. Maybe they weren't kept well. So what kind of advice do you have for gardeners and people on how to maintain your seeds so that they're stored properly, so that it doesn't impact the germ rates. Right. So the germination rate, like all that data on those little packets or the big packets, if you're growing at scale like you are, you know, with seed law throughout the 20th century, this became more and more consistent that uh, seed producers and distributors were required to include all of this information the season that the seed was grown, the season it was grown for, the germination rate at the time that it was shipped out, and what you as a grower could expect. So in the first year of seed being produced and then shipped out, you should expect pretty good germination rates, and that should be right on that label. The longer you hold that seed, the lower that germination rate is going to go from season to season. You know what I'm talking about. And I think most gardeners are nodding their head, right? So I think the the enemies of long seed storage are the same things that are our friends when we're trying to get them to germinate. So heat, moisture, light. That's what a seed needs to germinate. That's what the seed does not need if we don't want it to germinate or try to germinate and spend its energy and then die and become inviolable. So if you can allot some refrigerator space to your seed between seasons or store it in a cool, dry, dark place if that's reliable in your house. Now, I live in Northern California where it gets to 115, just about, you know, I don't know, 50 days a summer. So my front closet is probably not the best place to store my seed, nor is the drawer in my guest room where I have a lot of seed. If you're really wanting consistent germination, keep it in a cool, dark place that you can count on being cool, dark and dry. Excellent. So seeds have many uses, uh, including propagation to start plants as Mm -hmm. food and for medicine. You mentioned heirloom seeds. How are those preserved and and, uh, generation to generation to keep their integrity? Well, it's in some plants, it's really easy. Plants that don't cross with each other particularly uh, 
freely, let's say. And um, and for others, those that do like all of the squashes, they will cross-pollinate with each other and mess up your heirlooms in a big hurry. Same with your corn. So my recommendation would be to get yourself a really, if you have some heirloom seeds that you want to continue to grow respectfully and successfully over generations, Get yourself a good seed saving book. Uh, the seed garden that came from Seed Savers Exchange is outstanding. It will tell you the best um, isolation distances for the different kinds of plants, right? So if I have a corn, I think it's something like almost a mile needs to be between two different species of corn in order for them not to mess up each other's genetics so that you can collect seed and know that it's gonna come true to the type you want. Uh, your zucchinis and your squashes are are the same. It's not quite that far of an isolation distance, but it's pretty far. Now, if you have a controlled environment like you're creating for the world, Robert, it's easier because you can actually isolate different species in different places. But if you're growing outside, look up the isolation distances so that you can collect seed and feel pretty confident it hasn't been... Um, I don't want to say contaminated, but it hasn't been mixed. pollinated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, with other seed that you aren't trying to save. So um, that would be my that would be my best advice. So right now the climate's changing. Where where seeds used to be able to be planted at the uh, uh, longitude uh, latitude uh, is yeah. changing. And we're seeing a lot of fragile uh, ecosystems like dune lands, uh, wetlands. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are a number of companies out there that specialize in seeds for these natural habitats. How are they producing seeds and maintaining them so that you can replant these natural habitats? Right. It's really interesting. And I think it's one of the reasons that we all should know more about the seed banks in our area, like Svalbard being the biggest. I think there's something like 1,700 regional seed banks around the world who are all focused on different things. But part of what they do is supply that backup for growers to then take a little bit of the seed, grow it out, create plants that will produce more seed so that you have enough seed to hand off to, say, an ecosystem restoration project. Um, more and more, especially as we're coming close to 2030, where we have these big goals in, in North America, not just the U.S., but all of North America, um, to restore and preserve. So it's really preserve and then restore what you need to to get to 30% of our ecosystems preserved by 2030. This is, you know, big global initiatives to try and stem this awful biodiversity loss <clears throat> and habitat fragmentation that we have um, added to the world these last 150 years. The There are a lot of seed growers now who are trying <clears throat> to meet the demand of this restoration and preservation work. What they, the very best of them do, is they collect seed from local ecotypes 
to the restoration project. So for example, here where I am in Northern California, there are uh, there are big projects around the, around the removal of dams on the Klamath River. When those dams come down, we're going to have a bunch of land that is exposed because the water has dropped and the river is hopefully going to make its natural way once again. That land that is exposed where those reservoirs used to be are all being prepared for being restored with seed, with plugs, with um full, you know, larger plants in some cases to get kind of a a succession of plants ready in those places. People have been working for years collecting seed from the native plants of that region in order to have the seed ready by the time the dams come out and the land is removed. They collect, you know, so if you need 1,200 pounds of native bunch grass seed, these growers collected, you know, maybe 10 years ago, and then they've collected every year since, and then they've grown it out and collected exponentially more so that it's ready. And they are doing it from the local ecotypes. So again, we don't have inbreeding or outbreeding of sometimes very rare species that you don't want to, and in this case, it would be, contaminate with genetics from another species further away. Well, thank God for the the seed savers. Yes. Jennifer, yes. we could talk on and on. Our time's up. Uh, really appreciate you being on the show. Tell us about what we sow, where you can get it. So the book officially published on September 19th, and it should be available everywhere you get your books. The audio book published on the same day. So that should be available wherever you get your audio books. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the Green Sense Show. We really appreciate it. Love to have you back on as uh, as your book gets read out there and you get reviews and you want to do some updates. Just give us a call. I sure will. Thank you so much for your good work in this world. My guest this week was Jennifer Jewell, author of What We Sow, sharing her personal experience about the ecological and cultural significance of seeds. Visit the GreenSenseShow.com website to learn more about sponsorship. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to GreenSense and check out the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM, WBBM, Chicago. GreenSense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit C-E-A-T-E-C-H-N dot com to learn more.